Today's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and verses 1 to 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. <coughs> Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Thanks so much, Becky. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt, and um, I'm on the clergy team at St. Michael's, so it's really, it's really great to be with you this morning. Shall we uh, pray? Father, would you open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. And please help me to preach faithfully and come and show us just how good Jesus is. Amen. Well, I absolutely love living in London. There's a buzz and an energy in London that is totally unique. Um, I love getting on the bus and hearing different languages and different cultures. I love the food. Uh, my dad and I uh, went recently to a restaurant in the city and the menu, um, if you can call it that, was uh, just steak, nothing else. Uh, it was just incredible. I love the theatres and the coffee shops and the pubs. I love that you can have the most quirky, uh, bizarre hobby and London will cater for it. And there's so much that I love about this great city, but if there's one thing I struggle with in London, it's the constant noise. Whether it's the packed Victoria line in the morning or the kind of um, hardened London foxes screeching outside my window at 2 a.m. So now um, I've actually bought myself some sound canceling headphones and uh, they're absolutely incredible. And really, it's just to try and cut out the noise of London. But just occasionally, you hear something um, that cuts through the noise and grabs your attention. 
And not in a bad way, but in a good and very London kind of way. Uh, It makes me think of a time when I was a student living in South London. And we had friends over to our house and uh, it was close to midnight and we'd been chatting and laughing like you do. And then um, from nowhere, we heard this noise that came kind of just floating over our conversation. And it sounded, um, you know, those old school uh, fair rides. Um, It sounded a bit like that. So we went and opened the front door. And uh, there at midnight on a cold um, South London street was an ice cream van sounding its music at full volume. And after the sort of sugar haze had worn off, we were just left saying to each other the next morning, what the heck was that about? Like, such a bizarre experience. It's a bit like that in our reading this morning. In John chapter 14, Jesus holds out to us the kind of life-changing truth that nobody in the history of the universe could have anticipated or made up. And that's why the title for today's Uh, message is truth that cuts through the noise of life. Truth that cuts through the noise of life. And verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now earlier in John chapter 7, the Pharisees try sending guards to arrest Jesus And uh, they return without him, and the Pharisees kind of angrily ask them, you know, why didn't you arrest him? And the answer that these hardened, skeptical soldiers give is very instructive for us. They say in verse 46, no one ever spoke the way this man does. No one ever spoke the way this man does. And the gods were absolutely right. We're standing on holy ground this morning, and we get to listen in on the greatest truths that have ever been uttered by a human mouth. It's that fundamental. And the first astonishing truth that Jesus teaches is this, that we have no reason to be afraid. We have no reason to be afraid. So verse one, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, Believe also in me. Now, at this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus has just told the disciples that he's going to die, that he's going to be betrayed, and that Peter, his main disciple, his main man, is going to deny him. And in response to that earth shattering news, the disciples are feeling confused and troubled. As one commentator puts it, the thought of separation from Jesus uh, would have been hard enough, but the thought of failure at the moment of separation would have been far worse. And yet, even with his impending crucifixion and the impending failure of his disciples, still Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Presumably because In these awful circumstances, the disciples could have let their hearts be troubled. To which you might think, well, you know, is Jesus teaching here that we're not allowed to be troubled somehow, that we're not allowed to feel fear? And you might be thinking, you know, I've got huge problems. My My family member that I love is really sick or my finances are really 
tight um, every month or my boss is demanding way too much from me or my mental health is a real battle for me. How can Jesus say, do not let your hearts be troubled? Because the fact is that I'm often troubled. The answer, I think, is that God doesn't expect us to not feel fear, to not be troubled. Cancer is scary. Death is frightening. Work pressure and tricky office dynamics are real. Trials and temptations shake us, don't they? No, instead, it's teaching that while we may feel fear in these circumstances, it's teaching us to have faith, to use our faith like a shield, to push back and to stand our ground in the midst of fearful circumstances. It's like you still feel the fear, but you trust and stand firm on God's word anyway. You don't let the fear eclipse your faith. That we would remind ourselves of the truth, that we have no reason to be afraid. And Jesus helps us out so much in this reading by giving us such a powerful reason to not be afraid. He says in verse two, um, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And so to help us see that we have no reason to be afraid, Jesus lays out before us um, heaven. And he uses this incredible image of the Father's house to say that there are rooms for every single one of God's children in his house. And he wants that knowledge to banish fear from the hearts of the disciples. And what's amazing is the way Jesus speaks about it. You know, he doesn't speak about it like um, it's some vague hope of the afterlife. He speaks about eternity with unequaled familiarity and astonishing certainty. A bit like someone showing you around their hometown. Or like those TV shows where the presenter takes a couple into a house and shows them around. Nikki and I like to watch um, Escape to the Country on the BBC. And in that show, the presenter knows the house inside out. They know every room and every minor detail because they've been in there before and looked around. And Jesus is teaching that he has that kind of intimate knowledge of eternity. But even more, as he says in verse 2, it's such a wonderful personal reassuring words. I am going there to prepare a place for you. Jesus doesn't say eternity is real. Just, he doesn't just say that eternity is real and that he's familiar with it. He's teaching that he's excited about you and I being there with him. That's an awesome encouragement. And no wonder he's able to say, do not let your hearts be troubled. So like he's saying, if only you could see the love and security you have when you place your life in my hands, if only you could see the eternal home which waits for you just over the horizon, it would totally banish fear from your heart. And as one song puts it, be still and remember the worst that can come, but shortens our journey and hastens us home. Christ, our glory, Christ, our hope, Christ, our King, forevermore. 
the first truth that cuts through the noise of life is this. We have no reason to be afraid. Friends, do you know that? Do you feel it? And will you receive your Heavenly Father's encouragement to you this morning? That for those who've turned to Jesus, there is a personal room in heaven with your name on it. And no storm that you're in, no trial that you're facing, no difficult relationship or painful personal problem can take that promise from you. So put your trust in Jesus again today. So truth number one that cuts through the noise, we have no reason to be afraid, but truth number two follows from it. And it's this, that in Jesus Christ, we have found the truth. In Jesus Christ, we have found the truth. So verses five to six, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Almost every other religious leader in human history claims to know the way to God. That's not unique. But only Jesus Christ claimed to be the way to God himself. He stands utterly alone in the exalted and towering claims that he makes for himself. And therefore, if you're here and you're kind of exploring Christianity, I'd submit to you that it doesn't make much sense to say, well, I kind of admire Christ and I like his ethical teaching, but that's it. No, the only appropriate response when you've got hold of this passage, when you've got hold of the claims Jesus is making for himself, is to throw yourself at his feet and to say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you today. It's the only appropriate response. Who else has ever said, I am the way and the truth and the life? No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a challenging kind of exclusivity there, isn't there? Yeah, it's not Jesus plus religion or Jesus plus my moral achievements or Jesus plus my money and status or Jesus plus my reputation. No, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. He's the only way to the Father and the only guarantee of my eternal life. And what's interesting is when Jesus says, I am the way, another way of translating it could be, I am the road. That's the word he uses, I am the road to the Father. But as this conversation goes on, it's clear that this is a two-way traffic. There's traffic moving in both directions. Jesus is the road to the Father so that we could know him and love him and enjoy him. But he also goes on to say, Jesus is also the road, as it were, that the Father uses to come and make himself known to us. So just listen to verses 8 to 9. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And that will be enough for us. It's a great question, but Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after all, I've been among you such a long time. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. It's a bit like the Mal, you know, the, the, the straight road leading up to Buckingham Palace. That is the road, as it were, that we take if we are lucky enough to be invited and visit King Charles. 
But the Mall, it's also, isn't it, the road that the king comes out and uses to meet and greet his subjects. And Jesus is saying, in effect, he's like that. He's like that road, the Mall. He's the way to the Father, but he's also the way that the Father comes and speaks to us. And it's what he means, I think, in verse 11 when he says, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now, this has huge, huge importance for us and significance for us. Um, And I heard about, uh, I saw the importance of this in a story I heard of a pastor and theologian called Tom Torrance. In the Second World, Torrance volunteered as a chaplain and was sent to the front line. And one time he found himself with, very sadly, a severely injured Christian soldier who was slowly bleeding to death in his hands. And um, he had about 30 minutes left to live. And he tells how this poor guy looked him in the eye with fear and anxiety on his face. And the the anxious question the soldier asked him was this, is God really like Jesus? Is God really like Jesus? And he writes so movingly about how he was able to look this young Christian man in the eye just before his death in a moment of incredible weakness and vulnerability and to say, yes, God is exactly like Jesus. And you can place your life and your trust completely and totally in him. And then from then on, I heard that the pastor used to enjoy going around saying, Um, There's no God sort of hidden behind the back of Jesus. There's no God hidden behind the back of Jesus. I think that's exactly what verses 10 to 11 is teaching, that God has not held back the deepest part of his heart from us. That in Jesus, he flings wide heaven's doors and says, Jesus is worthy of your trust. Just look at how he lived. Look as it says in verse 11 at the evidence of the works Jesus did. Look at Jesus gladly bearing the agony of the cross so that we could be completely and utterly forgiven. And maybe God is saying to you this morning, you know, you've been thinking that my heart for you rises and falls depending on the mood that you're in or the mistakes that you've made or how guilty or unworthy you happen to feel, but actually I've made my decision. And the verdict is that all of those who put their trust in Jesus have permanent an irreversible access to me. That's the truth. The second truth that cuts through the noise of life is this. In Jesus Christ, we have found the truth. Let's celebrate and enjoy that today. And that leads to the third breathtaking truth that in some ways is even more mind-bending than the ones we've heard before. And it's this, that we get to carry on Christ's work. We get to carry on Christ's work. Now, if that sounds absolutely crazy to you as it did to me, listen to verse 12. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And notice here that this promise is not only for the apostles. Jesus says, whoever believes in me this does this. 
He's saying this is normal, standard Christianity, that all born-again Christians do this. All Christians carry on his work. And he even says such tantalizing and inscrutable and frustrating and intriguing um, statement that we'll do greater things than him. That is a completely mind-bending statement. What does Jesus mean? How could any Christian do greater works than Jesus Christ? Surely that's impossible. Consider what Jesus did. He turned water into wine. You know, he walked on water. He raised Lazarus's smelly corpse from the dead. Greater than those works? What does Jesus mean? It's an absolutely wild claim that he's making here, isn't it? Well, Jesus is talking, I think, about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the spread of the kingdom of God. And I think we can see that he means that at the end of verse 12 when he says, because I am going to the Father. And while Jesus never left Palestine in his earthly life, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the good news about Jesus spread over the whole world. And the kingdom of God was multiplied and the impact um, of Jesus' ministry was multiplied when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And that's how I take his meaning that we will do greater works than these. But it's an absolutely astonishing truth that Jesus gives us here that we get to carry on his work. And if it wasn't in the word of God, we might not dare to believe it. But there it is in black and white, as if it were written into stone, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And having stated that Christ absolutely will do his work through all Christians, he then moves on to set before us the remarkable willingness of God to hear us and to answer our prayers. That he might set us on fire with expectation and fervency in our prayers. So verse 13, he says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then he repeats it for emphasis in verse 14. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. God is not like a bad boss or an unreliable parent where one week we have his goodwill and the next week, someone else has it. Martin Luther, the great reformer, put it like this. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but it's laying hold of his willingness. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of God's willingness. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching here. Now, to be clear, he's not claiming that God will give us whatever we want whenever we, we want it. That would be absurd. He would cease to be God if that was the case. You'd turn him into this kind of giant slot machine where, you know, we put in our prayers and out pops exactly what we've asked for every time. It just doesn't stack up, does it? That's not what this promise means. It means this, that God's children always have his ear. We always have his ear. Through Christ, we're always pushing against an open door. 
We're always dealing with a God who's more passionate about blessing us and answering our prayers than we even are to muster up the faith to begin to ask him for help in the first place. Now, good parents don't need to be cajoled into being kind to their children today or acting in their children's best interests, and neither does God. God doesn't need cajoling into acting in our very best interests. He already wants to. He already does. But how, I wonder, is your expectation in prayer this morning? Because if those three truths are true, and I think they are, that we have no reason to be afraid, none, that in Jesus Christ we found the truth that sets us free, that he calls us to carry on his work. If all of that is true, well, of course, it's absolutely crazy for us to pray lackluster or small or spiritually unambitious prayers. I just can't make sense of verses 13 to 14 any other way. You know, we can enter the throne room of the king and we can say, Lord, I'm not willing to accept that family member, that son or daughter, not knowing and loving you. And we contend in prayer for it. Or we say, Lord, I'm not willing to accept that the decline of the church is just inevitable. I don't accept that. Lord, I'm not willing to settle for a life that never takes a risk of faith. And God, please would you open my eyes, open our eyes to your overwhelming, unstoppable willingness and passion this morning to hear and miraculously answer our prayers. Because we're told, aren't we, that whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. May the Lord equip us to do exactly that this morning. And just as we come to a time to pray, it may be that you, um, there's probably something bigger maybe that you've been asking the Lord to do for you. And he's calling you to have fresh faith to ask for that could be one group of people that's here it could be just about recognizing that you have no reason to be afraid and to receive that word of reassurance from Jesus but let's pray and do that now yes Lord we thank you so much that in Christ it really is true that we have no reason to be afraid